Hi there. It's great to be with you. If you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Psalm 130? Psalm 130. We're doing a, a series in the Psalms through the lockdown, really. And we're learning about how the Psalms are really songs for all seasons. They express all the different sorts of emotions we have. And one of the questions that comes up a lot, and which I want us to look at today, is the question of what do we do with suffering? When suffering strikes, when tragedy or difficulty of any kind comes, and for some of us it'll be bereavement, and for some of us it'll be health concerns of our own, for some it'll be loneliness and isolation, as we've seen in this series already, for some it might be financial challenge, it might be all kinds of things, but when suffering comes, however great or small it might seem, what do we do with it? I don't know how many of the Psalms you've read, but you may have noticed as you've read through them that a lot of them are songs of lament. They are sad songs. They're songs which express grief and sorrow and pain. And by doing that and expressing it upwards to God, they help us process danger or suffering or difficulty in our own lives. Because sometimes in the Psalms, rescue comes. And sometimes in the Psalms, it doesn't. And it leaves a great question mark over what will happen even as the Psalm ends. So they don't always tie everything up for us. But what they do is they give us a, a voice, a language, a mood, a song to sing to God in the midst of suffering and allow us often to express our grief and sorrow in ways that are better or more accurate than the way we might even ourselves choose. And sometimes you might have found that, that you're reading a psalm and you think, this psalmist knows what it's like to be me more than I do. Like, this is exactly how it feels where I'm at at the moment. And the Bible is full of charges to be ready for suffering. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial or there's going to be trouble for you in this world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So the Bible's full of that kind of thing. And so what we need to know is how do we respond when that suffering comes? What sorts of things should we do? What kind of language do we have to turn it into prayer? And how do we process what we're going through when the tragic realities of a fallen world hit us, whether it's the coronavirus or divorce or a miscarriage or a suicide of someone we know or cancer or cot death. I mean, the worst things this world has to throw at us sometimes come. And when they do, what do we do with that suffering? We're going to read Psalm 130, beginning at verse 1. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of God. It's a short psalm. And it's a psalm that really helps us by walking through the journey that many of us go on. And I think in many ways that all of us need to go on as we're processing grief 
and suffering and pain and sorrow in this life. And I think the journey that it goes on, take, if you like, is only eight verses in this psalm, but it reflects a four-stage journey that we can walk through. And I know some of you have probably heard me say this before, because it's something I often refer to and written about a bit as well out of our own experience as a family. But that the journey we go on in lament and in pain and suffering is a journey whereby we move from weeping to worshipping to waiting and finally to witnessing. Weeping, worshipping, waiting and witnessing. And this psalm takes like two verses a piece to do that. And in doing it, it really helps us handle the challenges of suffering and pain as, as they face us. And the psalmist starts just where we do. Right? If you're at all like me, you will start here. I think human beings naturally do start our response to suffering with weeping with howling, with crying, with sort of snorting and having, you know, snot running over your face. And it's like, Lord, this is awful. I mean, not like kind of, you know, very delicate, oh, just dab your eye. But we're, often we respond to serious suffering in pain and howls and loud lament and tears. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my cry for mercy. What are you doing, Lord? I need your help. And at the moment, I'm in the depths of sorrow. Please, would you rescue me? This is not a careful, measured piece of prayer, right? It's not holding back. It's not, hello, Lord. Well, things are rather difficult right now. That's not how the psalmist begins. This is a howling sound from somebody who's wrenched in their gut about what is happening to them. I cry to you, have mercy, have, hear my voice. I'm, I am supposed to cry when tragedy strikes, when suffering comes. And that doesn't mean every minor stuff, doesn't mean that I'm supposed to do that every time I stub my toe, which in my case is often. It doesn't mean that every time anything happens, you must cry. But when, when suffering comes in a serious way, as it often does to us, and as it will ultimately come to all of us, the Bible actually models for us an approach that involves crying, that involves expressing emotion and shouting sometimes and wailing and allowing that emotion to come out when tragedy strikes. That's what Jesus did, right? At Lazarus' graveside. Jesus wept. He's broken by what he can see, not just of his, the death of his friend, but of the grief that struck the community. The psalmists seem to be crying all the time. And actually, in many cultures, there's a much greater emphasis. If many of us are from cultures in the world where there's a much greater emphasis on lament as a way of processing grief. The English stereotype of somebody who's quite reserved and holds it together and doesn't let emotion out in public is not actually that biblical. It might be cultural for many of us, but including probably me, but that's not the way that most people in the Bible cope with it. That actually there's an expectation of noisy, loud lament when suffering comes, sometimes for, for hours, for days, for weeks, even months or years of grief in an appropriate fashion as according to the depth or severity of the suffering that's struck. And for many of us, that might come naturally, actually, because of our culture or even our personality. But when suffering comes to those who we love, we're supposed to have the same response to them. So some of us might feel naturally like I want to cry in a a movie or I cry if somebody dies at a funeral. But the Bible says, actually, we've not only got to cry when we feel emotionally stirred to do it in a very deep way, but actually it's appropriate for us to mourn with those who mourn. And it's appropriate for us as a family to carry the burdens others are carrying. 
And that might not come so naturally to many of us. We rejoice with those who rejoice, praise God, but we mourn or weep with those who weep. And it's important that we learn to do that in, with, uh, with those who are grieving rather than charging in with the answers or our own questions or objections. Uh, how could God let this happen to you? Or do you know what? I think the reason God's allowed this to happen is because of this, this, and this. Or sometimes we just charge in with advice. You know what you need to do? I went through this a few years ago. You should do this. Or even sometimes we just make silly Christian comments like, it'll all be all right. It might not all be all right. I often say this, but it, I don't think the Bible ever tells me that at least in the present that it's all gonna be all right. Ultimately it will in glory on the resurrection, but I don't know it's gonna be all right now. It might not be all right for you for years. That's not, the, that's not the answer of the psalmist here. The answer of the psalmist is to begin by crying out to God from the depths. And the risks that we have in our connected technological world, the risk of social media, for instance, is that we, we don't lament to God, we vent to people. So what happens when something sad happens is we want to get some answers and we want to get some solidarity. And instead of taking our prayer upwards in lament, we take it sideways in venting to people. And that can, it can actually be a risk in all kinds of things we do. It can be a risk of apologetics. Here's why God allows the virus. Here's why God... Now, I get asked that question too. So do you. But actually, my honest answer and the answer I was sharing with a few people doing some training the other night was simply the best answer. Why has God allowed suffering is, I just don't know. It's not just honest. It's actually biblically faithful as well. I don't know and I don't want to pretend I do. What I want to do is first get alongside you in the grief and sorrow, feel your pain and help express it with you as we go through this together. And that's actually for, for all that Job's comforters, do you remember that story? Where all the comforters of Job get wrong, the thing they get right is that when they first arrived at Job's side, they spend a week saying nothing and simply absorbing and sitting with him in his grief. I think there's something to learn from that. That's what we did when we found out one of our best friends had lymphoma we, we, and we thought she was going to die. She didn't, praise God, but we thought she was and that's what they thought too and we sat with them on their sofa and just cried. With no answers, no particular explanations, just tears. And that's how the psalmist begins and I think there's wisdom in that for us as well. We begin with weeping. But the psalmist doesn't stay there the whole time. He moves from weeping Eventually, in verses 3 and 4, he starts worshipping. And what he does, notice this in verses 3 and 4, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So this is a prayer of worship to God for the gospel. It's effectively him saying, Lord, I am crying out to you in the depths here, but I know that if you were to treat me according to what my sins deserve, I'd be in huge trouble. I'd be suffering far more than I am now. And so I want to give thanks to you that even though things may be very difficult in my life, ultimately there is still forgiveness and grace in the God of heaven. And I'm going to come to you and praise you for that even as I continue to wrestle with these other things that are going on. You are merciful and gracious and forgiving and that's why I'm in awe of you. Notice the power of worship in suffering. Well, when we worship in suffering, what we do is we remind ourselves that no matter what's going on in our life, no matter how hard things are, we're actually being treated better. I am, you are, better than we deserve. And my friend uh, P. 
PJ Smythe, is, he leads a church in DC in, in America. But he wrote this just after he'd come through his own battle with cancer, where again, he and his wife and family thought he was probably gonna die. And he wrote this at the end and it really helped me. I hope it will help you. He said, the greatest enemy to gratitude is a sense of entitlement. The moment you think you're hard done by and deserve more, then you can wave goodbye to thankfulness. However, circumstances of sickness, death or disappointment can lend themselves to a sense of entitlement like no other. And so cultivating gratitude and contentment in all circumstances can be a stiff challenge in the storm of suffering. I've already received from God way more than I deserve. If God were to treat me fairly right now, not only would he back up and remove every single blessing I've had in my 39 years, but he would cast me into eternal hell. That's what I deserve. Anything better than that is a bonus and bonuses make me grateful. And some of us find that hard to hear, but that's actually biblical Christianity, isn't it? You and I don't have what we deserve, not because we have far less than we deserve, but because we have far more through the grace of Christ. Again, some of you have heard me say this before, but if these two hands represent what you have, what you think you have and what you think you deserve, right? if you think you have a lot and you think you don't deserve very much at all, that gap is called gratitude because you think you've got loads in Christ and you don't deserve it. But if you think you deserve a lot and you think you have very little, that gap is called grumbling. And so the difference between grumbling and gratitude is a mixture of your perception of how much you have and how much you deserve. And the psalmist speaks to himself and says, you have far more than you deserve. Lord, thank you that you have given me forgiveness and grace and freedom when I don't deserve it. And because you don't mark my iniquities, because with you there is forgiveness, I fear and praise you. And I want to worship you in the midst of this storm. When suffering hits me and hits you, whether it be a virus or anything else, it is good to remember what we deserve in ourselves and what we have in Christ. As a result of the grace of God, we move from weeping to worship him. And then from there, having spent time weeping and worshiping, in verses five and six, the psalmist begins to talk about waiting. And this is the hardest bit, I think. This is the bit that I find the most difficult, waiting. I actually don't find it so hard to cry or to declare the goodness of God because of his grace to me and what I deserve. I, personally, I find that, I can do that just about by his power, but the waiting I find really hard. And the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. What else are you going to hope in? His word. That's the only source of hope in this world. And in hoping in him, my soul waits for the Lord like watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. When we're in the depths of despair, we wait for the Lord. We, we, we know his word. We know his word says that he is going to make all things right one day. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to give new life to the entire world. He's going to raise everything. There'll be new creation. There'll be no suffering or pain or tears or anything like that. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's all coming. I hope in that word. But in the meantime, I've got to wait. I've got to anticipate and long for that day, but live with the dissonance of the fact that it's not the reality now. And the psalmist, to try and communicate what that's like, uses the analogy of a watchman. Again, ancient world, they didn't, didn't have these. You're not sitting here with wristwatches just planning, oh, well, it's all right, I've only got about 40 minutes and then Eric's gonna come and take over my shift. That's not what watchmen did. They just knew it was dark 
and they're probably in the first, second, third, or fourth watch of the night. That's all they know. They don't know when morning's gonna come, but they know that it will. They wait for the morning, not with a sense of counting down the minutes, they wait for the morning knowing that it will come, but not knowing when. And that's the manner in which the psalmist expects us to be waiting for the Lord to come and redeem us from our situation. In many situations of intense suffering, our deliverance will come before death. In some, and in fact, in at least one case for every one of us, it will come, unless Christ returns first, it will come after death. I don't know when it's gonna come. I can't look at my watch and say, this is when the Lord's gonna end the lockdown, heal me of this, heal my family member of that. I don't know if he will or when he will, Except that, but I know that he will on the other side of death at the very latest, and he may well do it first. What I know is I've got to wait now in anticipation of the day of redemption, which will certainly come, but it may not come before the day I die. And for all of us, at least once, our testimony will turn out to be, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we wait for the Lord, knowing that redemption is coming, but not being sure when, like a watchman for the morning. I know that day's coming. I'm not sitting with my fellow watchman having our tea break at what turns out to be four in the morning. Do you think morning's coming today? I'm not really sure. Maybe it'll be one of those days that morning doesn't turn up. That's never what the watchman's saying. The watchman knows it's coming. Of course the, watch, course the morning's coming, you fool. But I don't know quite when, so I'm gonna hang in there and anticipate and look forward to it more and more. Like a watchman waits for the morning. We groan inwardly, Paul says in Romans 8, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And I sometimes use the example of, I love the penguins. I just, these are my favorite animal in creation for witnessing what it is to wait. You see the emperor penguins, the David Attenborough documentary, and you see the emperor penguins and the, male, the women go off for the, through the Antarctic winter and do something else, I'm not sure what it is. And the male emperor penguins all huddle around in minus 70 degree blizzards in Antarctica where the sun sets and it doesn't rise for four months and they just make a massive shuffling crowd against this howling blizzard. So the most inhospitable place imaginable on earth. And the emperor penguins shuffle around looking after these little eggs, which are their chicks that they carry on their feet. And they shuffle around like this for four months trying to keep warm. And I often imagine them singing with Matt Redman. If they sang Matt Redman songs, they'd sing this one. I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on. There will be an end to these troubles, but until that day comes, still I will praise you. Still I will praise you. I don't know if penguins sing worship songs, but if they do, they sing that one. It's an anticipation of the fact that light will come, but I'm not sure when. And in the meantime, this is awful. It's terrible, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait again, trusting on the basis of the word of the Lord that my hope is secure and that he will come and make it right, even if I don't know when. We wait in certain hope. And then finally, after weeping, worshipping and waiting, the psalmist starts witnessing. This is powerful. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Do you see what's happened? The psalmist has moved from crying in the depths of despair to rallying those around him to point to the goodness and faithfulness of God, witnessing of God's love and God's redemption. 
And if you're suffering, you may have no idea how much power it has when you witness to the goodness of God in and through your suffering. That was our experience when we found out that our children had disabilities. We, we were going through something, as many of us, we all do in some way, that was ours, and we went through that in a big way. It was very painful, and there was a lot of crying and some you know, worshipping and a lot of waiting, and in many ways there still is. But we found that people have always been very strengthened when we have witnessed to the love and faithfulness of God in the midst of the sorrow and the sadness, which is, of course, for many of us, still there on a daily basis. There is great power to witnessing while the suffering has not yet gone away. For a fellow believer, it can be very encouraging. A lot of us watching this are Christians, and you've found it encouraging when you've heard the testimony, the witness of the saints to the goodness of God in their suffering. But you might not be a believer today. You might be watching this because you're sitting at home and you're inquiring, you're considering Christianity. And actually, in my conversations with many people like you in the past, I found people are often quite challenged by the fact that you're almost asking questions like, so, I don't understand. What kind of thing is this you believe in that is able to support and strengthen you through that? What is it that does, where does the power come from for that sort of joy in the midst of that sort of darkness? And there are so many examples of this that it's kind of hard to know where to start, but just two or three that help me thinking about the way that people witness to the steadfast love and redemption of the Lord in the midst of dark suffering. I think of Fannie Lou Hamer, she'll be a name some of us would know, being tortured and savagely beaten in a Mississippi jail in the 1960s for being active in the civil rights movement. And she experiences this harrowing, harrowing suffering, which I won't go into, but she had to, in the end, had to testify to Congress about it. And so it's all public record. It's vile and disgusting, to be honest with you. But she's going through this, and then the next day she's in her jail cell and she begins to sing. And she takes inspiration from the story of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16, and she begins to sing. Paul and Silas began to shout, let my people go. Jail doors opened and they walked out. Let my people go. And she begins to sing praise songs, spirituals in the jail cell. And she finds that other prisoners, many of whom are also part of the civil rights struggle in Mississippi, begin singing the song with her. And this enormous power of the witness to the steadfast love and faithfulness of God comes into a jail cell. So I think of Fannie Lou Hamer, right? I think of very different character, Horatio Spafford. You can tell by hearing the name Horatio Spafford that he probably wasn't uh, from Mississippi in the 1960s. But Horatio Spafford is a hymn writer who lost all four of his daughters in the same shipping accident. In one day, his wife and four daughters are all on a ship in the Atlantic in the 19th century. The ship sinks. His wife survives and his four daughters all drown in one day. His wife sends him a telegram and it simply says two words, saved alone. And Spafford begins to write this hymn, which we still use today. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. 
And if you know the song, you know the power there comes from hearing somebody witnessing to the love and redemption of God in the midst of dreadful suffering. Like Charles Spurgeon, who pastor the church in Elephant and Castle 150 years ago. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Oh, blessed hurricane that drives the soul to God and God alone. It's like the psalmist says here, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. What do we do with suffering? We weep, we worship, we wait, and we witness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the power of the gospel to sustain and strengthen us. And I pray that whatever challenges, trials or sufferings the people listening to this are right now and wherever in the world we are, you would enable us to weep through that pain, to worship you for your grace, to wait for the Lord and to witness to the plentiful love and redemption there is found in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.